This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Municipal elections are being held next week with Orlando City Commission races on the ballot in three districts, while mayoral elections are being held in several cities around central Florida. Issues driving voters to the polls include growth and development, housing and jobs. Joining me for a closer look at those races and some of the headlines in state politics, Chris Carmody, shareholder with Gray Robinson and Republican political analyst, and Dick Batchelor, former state lawmaker, Democratic political analyst and founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Dick, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Good to be back. And Chris Carmody. Chris, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, let's start with some municipal elections. In Orlando, there are three city commission races being contested. District 1 incumbent Jim Gray is facing challenges. Sunshine Grund and Bill Moore. In District 3, incumbent Robert Stewart faces Nicolette Springer and Samuel Chambers. And in District 5, incumbent Regina Hill is being challenged by Shaniqua Rose. And some of the issues are the same across all the races. Affordable housing, mass transit, jobs, to name a few. Let's start with District 1. Uh, Dick, what can you tell us about the incumbent and his challenges in this race? There's always the advantage of the incumbency, particularly in local races where you're out there, you're meeting people while you're in office, while you're serving the several years you served in, in the interim. Uh, you get become very familiar with the issues. You get to host community meetings pre-pandemic and meet people. So the incumbent always has the, the, uh, the leg up, so to speak. And the two candidates running against uh, Mr. Gray are pretty weak. I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, but they don't have any political strength. They're not raising any money. So I think uh, Mr. Gray is going to be fine in this election. Chris, what are your thoughts? I, I think, you know, the name Sunshine Grund is familiar for folks who have been following local politics. I believe she ran for mayor a few years ago now. Yeah, the, the name is familiar, but I think to Dick's point, incumbency has its advantage. Folks who've turned out before have voted for Commissioner Gray. And to my knowledge, he hasn't given him a reason to change that vote. And once people vote for someone once, it's sort of buying stock. And you're going to stick with that stock no matter what, even if it dips a little bit. And I I have not heard of any reason why the the stock in Jim Gray, anyone would want to sell that back and go with someone else. So those folks are probably there with him. He's probably collecting more. And I think more importantly, when you look at District 1 and Orlando, Orlando's had growth all across the city. Mm -hmm. But probably the least amount of growth in comparison to some of the other districts we're going to talk about is in that area. It's 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 over in the Lake Nona area. While it's grown, it's it's been pretty stable in growth. When we talk about District 3 and 5, especially District 3, mm-hmm. a lot of growth has been in that area with new voters, new residents that have changed. But, you know, Commissioner Gray, most of the folks are voting, voted for him last time. Not a, not a t- large influx of new voters into his area compared to some of the others. Well, let's talk about District 3, um, Chris. Carmody, you, you brought this up, and uh, you know, development. Obviously, that's been something that the the incumbent and the the challengers, particularly, have been campaigning on. Just talk about what stands out for you about this race. I think in District Three, where you have the incumbent Commissioner Robert Stewart and probably the main challenger Nicolette Springer. There's three candidates, but I would say it's Nicolette and Commissioner Stewart. It's where it's going to come down to is does the incumbency that Dick talked about hold true when uh, so much of that district is either new or added into and when when you and for folks listening that's baldwin park delaney park area and um uh, college park area Mm -hmm. and all three of those major neighborhoods have had major change in growth uh people moving in and out and adding in uh as a baldwin park resident myself i see the growth in that area and and so you you have to almost like reach out to new people uh a lot more new people than you were expecting before so even though all the folks that voted for you previously and the time before that and before that, they're probably going to stick with you regardless of how they feel about some of the development or transportation or anything else. But it's that, that 20% of new folks in the district, which could be the difference, 
where are they going to land? And mm-hmm. and I think that some of that is very much up in air right now is whether that's this race is going to be done in a, in a week or if it's going to be done in a runoff um, with three candidates. And, and I think you're seeing that with this competitive race. Dick Batchel, you talked about uh, the door-to-door campaign. I believe you were referring to this particular yes. race. Um, yeah. Just tell me what's been happening there, the, the work that's been put in and maybe how that may pay out. Yeah, first of all, pay I, off rather. First of all, a point of disclosure, I went to Sunday school in the 1950s with Jacob Stewart, uh, uh, Robert's brother. I served in the state legislature with Senator Stewart, his Mm -hmm. other brother. So I I guess I'm biased to to that degree, having known them a long time. His brother Jacob worked for Governor Martinez. He worked for uh, Governor Bill Fredericks, chief of staff. I mean, there's a whole history there. But to the point, though, on Nicolette Springer, she ran for the county commission. Mm -hmm. She's very smart. She's very astute politically. She's working hard. I was very surprised in a city commission race that Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy endorsed her. Uh, Anna Eskamani, state representative, endorsed her. I, was, I don't think I've seen a race where you've got members of Congress and state legislators getting involved in a city election. But Nicolette Springer is kind of in that club, so to speak. So uh, she's getting a lot of support. She's raising money. She won't outraise the incumbent because they're valuing the incumbency again. Mm-hmm. But she's doing a lot, a lot of door-to-door, a lot of uh, sign-waving, uh, post-pandemic now getting out and even shaking some hands. So she is a tough candidate for Robert Stewart. He recognizes that, of course, and he will probably outraise her two-to-one. Again, the value of the incumbency and the fact that he's actually been there doing doing a, a good job according to his supporters but that race is going to be there's another race we're going to talk about too that's going to be contested hmm. uh, pretty strongly but in that race Nicolette Springer if you had to choose a candidate to run against an incumbent of how many years now 12 plus years uh, you would find a young aggressive bright uh, female and then again have her endorsed by these members of Congress and state legislators. I've, I've not seen that in a, ro- in a local race. So she is a very strong candidate. That's going to be an interesting race. And, and to get out the vote is going to be the most important thing other than the money. Hmm. And the question is, does Robert Stewart have the turnout machine that Nicolette Springer has put together? Let's talk about District 5 then. Regina Hill is a popular candidate. I mean, she's fended off challenges in the past. Uh, Dick, what do you see playing out in this race? Well, Commissioner Hill is a very impressive woman. Uh, it's interesting. Keep in mind, when she, before she ran, there were all the newspaper articles. She'd been arrested like 20 times. One was a felony. She got a rights reinstated. Mm-hmm. She ran. And keep in mind, she ran in, a, I think it was a four-way race, and including Daisy Lynham's son, Juan, ran against her. Right. Well, she won that race. And she kind of leaned into the controversy, too. She said, I'm not going to shy away from it. She did. Uh, she admitted it. And uh, and uh, it was all public record, and she, so she does did not deny anything. But I have met with her on a number of occasions. A lot of it's not for profit stuff, advocacy things, and she is really learning the issues. Uh, she is very well liked in her commit, uh, uh, district. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's there all the time. She delivers. Remember Congresswoman Corinne Brown? I always deliver. Uh, that was kind of her mantra, and it is uh, Regina Hill's mantra too. She's probably raised uh, approaching $100,000. Her kickoff for her reelection was hosted by incumbent Mayor Buddy Dyer, which gives a lot of lift. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, she's got a lot of activity in her district, too, in Lyft Orlando. I didn't mean to segue into a pun, but Lyft Orlando 
which is now has about $110 million of infrastructure projects in her district, either on the strong board or been completed at Boys and Girls Club, $7 million from the city of Orlando to redo Lake Lorna Dune. Uh, there's a, they've built uh, apartments, 250 apartments, with 6,000 people on the waiting list, by the way. So she's worked very good with, I'm going to call it the, it's a, uh, kind of the, the corporate community, too. Mm-hmm. But she's really there on a day-to-day door-to-door constituency, and they understand that she understands them. So I I, I would say she's uh, the strongest with the incumbency, with the endorsement, with the money, and the value that she's had in four years to really meet her constituent needs as she perceives them. Chris, what do you know about the challenger, Shaniqua Rose? Shaniqua, uh, she was active, excuse me, she was employed at the city and Mm -hmm. and had a pretty high up position and she started Change for the Community, a nonprofit, also active in the unions. She's no stranger to this this district, to this race and to obviously the city. Um, And she's working hard. I think I I tend to land where Dick lands on this, at least I think that's where he land on, on Commissioner Hill is the incumbency usually provides an advantage and, and she I'm not sure anyone can outwork Commissioner Hill. I mean, she is working it hard, uh, both within the corporate and institutional community, and also within the, in the actual residential community there. Uh, but it's it's made the race interesting. And and you know, if you asked, would I be surprised if Shaniqua won? No, I, I think um, all these races probably have, or at least District Three and Five have the potential for a surprise there, given how um, competitive they've become. Mm-hmm. But when you're the incumbent and you're not sleeping on the job, so to speak, you're not taking it for granted. Uh, I think it tends to work in your advantage. And I think another thing that, that that's relevant here is when you think four years ago when some of these seats were up and, and these folks were getting elected or reelected, Orlando was in a much different spot. The economy was doing okay, but not great. The crime, actually, if you look at the numbers, what was we had a weird blip in our crime where it was a little up and, and, and you saw that where the challengers were accusing the incumbents of sleeping on crime mm-hmm. and letting that hit. Crime is relatively controlled right now in the city. The economy is doing well. I mean, we're seeing tons of growth. And really, the the slings and arrows are all being aimed towards Tallahassee or others over, you know, vaccines or masks or what have you, where the local folks are kind of viewed as, hey, these are our heroes. They're standing up for us. It's not easy to be a local elected official these days. And so I think when you have that and the voter general, the, the voters are generally not upset with the status quo, that more than anything probably favors the incumbent. I think four years ago there was some rufflings of, you know, our incumbents aren't necessarily taking care of us, and it was more a symptom of crime was up a little bit, the economy didn't wasn't as stable as it is now, but the economy's rocking, crime is well under control right now, at least it's perceived to be, and certainly statistically it is, and and, and any anger is usually over these the, the COVID issue, not about potholes and and mm-hmm. other issues. So there are some other municipal races around Central Florida and Seminole County, Oviedo's mayor. Megan Sladek faces challenges, Kevin Hypes and Abraham Lopez. I want to ask you both, I mean, is development uh, and growth the big story in Oviedo, the big issue here too? Chris, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think this election is going to come down to a referendum on uh, development and transportation. Oviedo, of of all of the Central Florida communities, has seen a lot of growth. When, mm-hmm. when you go outside of Orlando, um, that's probably been one of the bigger growth areas. And, they, and to their credit, they've done a great job of managing that, keeping their commercial districts in certain areas. You still have the chickens running yeah. around in the neighborhoods. I mean, you know, it has its folksy. It's kind of an anachronistic thing, isn't it, when you see Because the downtown has some of that sort of old Florida small town charm still. 
Yeah, no, you've got the, 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 the chickens roaming free in the downtown. You still have the celery farms from Duda. And then yet you have this downtown growing uh, very strongly uh, with, with their, the, the, the lake park there. You know, it, but, it, but again, Megan Sladek, the mayor of Oviedo, her two opponents, uh, with one in particular, Mr. Hypes, they have made it about transportation. They've said that we have transportation issues and we're overdeveloped and what have you. And, and that will be the question is, is if, if they can get the word out and they think people agree with them, they might have a chance. Now, I point out it's a three-way race with an incumbent and it's no runoff. It's plurality. So hmm. all, all the, the winner only needs to get one more vote than the, the second place person they're elected. So if I was hedging it, I would tend to say the mayor is in good posture here. She's got name ID. She's well-liked. She's got other politicians in the community that are backing her. But, you know. This is election season, silly season in my world. Yeah, and the video is obviously exponential growth. It's just quite amazing on the commercial side. Keep in mind, you referred to the Duda family, obviously a long-standing family. They got in the commercial development. They don't, I don't. At the growing salary, I don't know where it is, but anymore. But they're they're it's heavily developed. But I think to Chris's point too, where I agree is that the value of the incumbency again, and when you when you talk about transportation, the problem. To me, that issue is it's so organic, it's hard to put your hands around it. So do you mean mass transit? Do you mean more lakes buses? Do you mean four-lane roads? Hmm. Well, what I always say when you're doing advocacy, you put a face on it. You know, if it's child abuse, domestic violence, you can put a face on it. Roads, transportation, transit, it's kind of amorphous kind of a deal. But so my point is I don't think transportation will drive this election. And of course, uh, in other counties in Brevard, uh, the Cape Canaveral mayor is up for election. There's also uh, mayoral elections in Mount Dora and Lake County and Lake Helen and Volusia County, along with some other races. Non-presidential election years, even midterm elections, uh, sometimes local municipal races don't get a whole lot of attention. Um, How much attention should we be paying to these municipal elections, though, Chris? How, how, um, How critical are they to folks who maybe don't live in those areas? Well, we always love to say all politics is is local, and it really is. But, I mean, even when you look at this Mount Dora race or the Cape Canaveral mayor's race, you have – we'll dive in a little bit here. In the, in the mayor's race for Mount Dora, you've got an incumbent, longtime incumbent, uh, being taken on by someone who was on the council with the, the incumbent mayor, then tried to run for the state house and lost. Um, so you got all that local politics. But, you know, the mayor of the city – I mean, we saw it with Surfside, right, and other things. You know, you never know and you yeah. hope it doesn't happen, but you never know when your city is going to be in the spotlight or when there's going to be something that goes on. When I think of Cape Canaveral, I think of our port there. While the port is an independent district, if you've got an uncooperative mayor that's working as a partner, that's a problem, right? And the same thing with Mount Dora. That's such an important part of our community when you think of the historic district there, the amount of events, the proximity of the lake, and, and, and how it's both like sort of our natural tourism uh, focus – you know, the wrong mayor can have some 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 negative effects that will affect have ripple effects across our economy and our and our way of life. So, I always encourage everyone, you know, pay attention, run if you've got the gut in your in your in your belly, because and the money, well, and the money, yeah. I mean, you can't win these races. I mean, Dick mentioned that uh, Commissioner Hills on on Facebook. The irony is, as much as some of the social media companies are picked on, hmm. if you're going to win an election, you have to be omnipresent. You have to be out there and. And people aren't in a public forum. I'm using air quotes for those listening. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They're on Twitter, p- pronouncing their views, telling people what they had for salad that day and who they hung <laughs> out with um, and, and so that they can get the word out of what they're doing and why they're engaged. And so uh, you need the money, but you need the presence. And they're all important, though, and mm-hmm. we should give them more attention. 
Let's um, pivot, if we could, for a moment to state politics. The governor has called for a special session to address vaccine mandates and other things. Dick Batchelor, what do you make of this? It's politics all the time. It really is. I mean, a special session on this issue, um, you know, you can predict here's an incumbent governor running for re-election. There's not a strong Democrat in the race, even though a third one got in the race. He's really running for president in 2024. So everything you see between now and the election will be geared towards that presidential bid. Uh, this one issue uh, is um, just a I don't it's unnecessary for me to believe they need a special session to deal with this issue. And then you're going to have a situation where it might be predictable that he was going to be in a conflict. He's already in a conflict with the incumbent Democratic Mayor Jerry Demings, who's married to Congressman Val Demings, of course, who is running for U.S. Senate. So it all ties into it's a good political. The optics are good for him, for his base. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just like with the school boards on the mask issue with the school boards. Teresa Jacobs, big Republican, obviously chair of the school board in Orange County take a position on masking. He's threatened to go ahead and deduct uh, their their salaries, maybe remove them from office. It's so it's raw politics is what it is. And then uh, then you, it gets complicated because you've got now his new Surgeon General who mm. doesn't want to wear a mask when he meets with an incumbent senator who has being treated for cancer. I, I did, it, to me, it's just a it's an exercise of futility, in my opinion, but it's just raw politics. And I understand why he's doing it. Don't agree with it, but I understand why he's doing it politically, because he's throwing red meat to the base. Dick Batchelor, uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, is his confirmation in jeopardy? Do you think there are some people sort of coming out and saying we're not quite so sure about this candidate mm-hmm. for our Surgeon General? I think there are two th- issues here. One is, is he qualified? And for a, a physician during a pandemic to basically say that he doesn't really believe that vaccinations work and maybe masks don't work, to me it's just unbelievable that you would have a physician taking that position in a in a public forum, number one. And number two, there's a story out today about uh, some emails showing how fast-track his appointment was to the University of Florida faculty. And he's that's two jobs. So his salary would be maybe four four $450,000 if you combine the two salaries. So I think there's a little angst going on. The Senate president did say that the way he handled this meeting with the senator with cancer, he thought it was inappropriate. But is that strong enough to go to DeSantis and say, we're not going to approve this guy? You can go through the machinations, and but, but say, oh, by the way, the governor said, I want this appointment confirmed. And that, that carries, that's the gravitas there. Well, as a reminder, the previous, his predecessor in that job was only confirmed hastily right as the pandemic was beginning because he had yet to be confirmed. And it was it was it was expected and believed that he wasn't going to be confirmed by the Senate. They were just going to not vote on it, which would mean his confirmation would lapse because he needed to have approval by the Senate and the governor would eventually have to prove someone else. But going into a pandemic, the Senate saw fit that, you know, we ought to probably have someone confirmed that can be in charge of of this area, Department Mm -hmm. of Health. So I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion he's going to get confirmed, and this did not help in any way. Uh, if you know President Simpson, you're not surprised by that letter. I, I, I certainly wasn't. Uh, he's, a, he's a good man, and I could see him immediately hearing that story and saying, we're going to nip that in the bud, um, you know, and respect his senators from both parties. But, it, it, you know, this is, on the, this is on the Surgeon General. If How he approaches it with the Senate will kind of dictate this. I think his positions are well stated, and as a result, I, I doubt a single Democrat will vote for him to be confirmed. 
and and the Republicans will largely probably be okay with those positions, give it, not all of them, given his position on some of the vaccines. But if he's not handling himself with a level of professionalism with the senators, even just the Democrat members, that could put it in question where they might just not vote on it at all and let it lapse and, and let the governor. So you're not embarrassing the governor, but you're, you're saying he doesn't get to stay. Uh, Democratic political analyst Dick Batchel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And Republican political analyst Chris Carmody, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. Still to come, new signs go up in Holden Paramore highlighting the history of the district, a conversation about preserving the history of a neighbourhood which is facing profound changes. That's when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Orlando is installing the first of more than 25 signs recognising Holden Paramore as a nationally registered historic district. 27 street sign toppers, entryway signs and mast arms will be installed around Holden Paramore, which was designated a historic district in 2009. I spoke with state representative and founder of the Wells Built Museum, Geraldine Thompson, about the significance of the new signage. Well, it means that we're acknowledging the significance of this community that started in the late 1800s when African Americans came here and they worked in the groves and they worked in folks' homes who wanted them close but not in the same community. So this is the hub of what was the African American community and I'm glad to see that it's now being recognized. There's recognition and then there's, I guess, action. I don't know, Paramore, Holden, I mean, there, there are some kind of economic issues that still need to be sorted out. Do you think enough attention has been focused on the residents, uh, you know, aside from the history of the place and acknowledging that? Well, we see a lot of changes, as you have seen. Uh, Paramore is now home to uh, sports complexes and stadiums, and so a lot of the people uh, who lived here were displaced. So we have to address those kinds of things. We also have to address... Uh, the whole issue of gentrification, revitalization, whatever name you want to give it, we need to make sure that when revitalization occurs, that it is in conjunction with making sure that the people who were here many years ago are treated well and fairly. Where does cultural tourism fit into that? Because as the founder of a museum, and you know, you know more than probably many people about the rich history of Paramore and particularly the what used to be the you know the hotel and, and is now the museum it kind of showcases that but do you think more could be done to tell people the story of, well, of what through, went on? Through the American Rescue Plan, uh, $30 million was appropriated to the state of Florida uh, to shore up some of the historic African-American sites uh, in the state. And so the Wells Build is positioned to uh, apply for some grant funding to expand our facility, uh, to do more marketing. And that's always been the catch-22, the chicken and the egg. If you don't have the visitors, you don't have the money for marketing. If you don't have the marketing, you don't have the visitors. So more of that is occurring And if you look at Florida compared to Georgia and how they market African-American history from the King Center to the Human Rights Center, uh, you look at Alabama, we're, we're slow to get there, but we are making some movement. And that was State Representative and founder of the Wells Built Museum, Geraldine Thompson. Joining me is Natasha Gay. She is the Executive Director of the Paramore portion of City District. Natasha, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Matthew. 
So first of all, let's talk a little bit about where the signs are going to be located and what they are highlighting. So the first phase of this project to really illuminate that Paramore is a nationally registered historic district, we are going to be doing uh, street sign toppers and as well entryway signs. And so a couple of the places that the entryway signs will be are Division and South Street, uh, Church and Division. Also, we have uh, Lee and Church And then we are also going to have um, one off of Anderson and McFall. And so those are the entryway signs that will be in the brown and white uh, historical uh, fonts that will describe that Paramore was established in 2009 as a nationally registered historic district. And the street signs will look much the same. They'll be a brown sign with white lettering, and they'll actually go on top of the street signs. And we have close to... 20 different locations that those street toppers will go on throughout the community. So if it was designated back in 2009, this has been a a while coming, is that right? Yes, and I think a lot of people did not know that Paramore is one of the only commercial nationally registered historic districts, which actually means that we are registered with the U.S. Park Service. And so unlike some of the other historic districts in Orlando, this designation doesn't actually protect the properties. Um, we do have about 84 contributing buildings that contribute to that status, and we have about 24 that are non-contributing. And it really just shares the history of Paramore and why they are designated with this National Historic Registry. Does any of the signage that's going to go and kind of explain a little bit about what makes each site significant? I mean, because there are historic signs like that talking about particular events or places around the city already, right? Yes, most definitely. And so those are actually with Florida State. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are landmark site signs. There's actually one in front of the Wells Built Museum. And those take a little bit longer uh, to, one, go through the state and be proofread. And then they're actually bronze landmark site signs and we'll actually have four of those throughout paramore telling why paramore is a nationally registered historic district and really the significance of that is that it's one of the oldest and largest african-american neighborhoods in orlando which was founded in the 1800s and so there's so much rich history that's held in paramore and that's what our purpose is with this sign project i think a lot of people may think of paramore in a specific way where the media sensationalizes news but there's so much good in this community and we wanted to begin writing the narrative of what is the origin history of Paramore, who are the movers and shakers within this community, and really start sharing that story so our community can take up space in the neighborhood. What parts of Paramore or Holden Paramore do you think the wider community needs to know more about? Because there is the Wells built, obviously, and there's such a storied legacy to that place in terms of the people who stayed there and some of the leading lights from the African-American community over the years. But Are there some other places that you think people just need to know more about? Yes, most definitely. Um, We we all know that the Orlando City Soccer Stadium is in Paramore, 
and it sits right on South Paramore Avenue, and that's where most of our building stock is. Uh, we do have the Hankins building there. We have a couple other contributing buildings, and we also have a lot of churches that are historical sites as well. And so there's so much vibrancy in the community, whether you're going to Nikki's Place or Foodies or going off of Church Street and City View and experiencing some of the businesses there. There are such great vibrant businesses in this community and of course the Wells built is a beautiful thread to the history of Paramore and black history within the community of Central Florida as a whole mm -hmm. and so I would say to people that maybe have not been to Paramore to look up the local restaurants and the retail and really get to know the community because this is truly a main street with mom and pop legacy businesses we have some legacy businesses like Palmer's that have been open for decades and still have family members running uh, that retail store. And they also sell uh, live chickens if you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like to collect eggs, you know, and that's probably in a 50-mile radius. They're the only people that do that. And so there's really great anchors within the community. And so I will always encourage people to go to the Wells Built to learn more about the history in this space. And I'm hoping through this type of programming – where we begin to tell the history that we will have more stories about the Chitlin Circuit, about the South Street Casino, about Ray Charles and Duke Ellington playing Ella Fitzgerald. There's so much rich history that took, that took place during the Jim Crow era that I think possibly the Orlando, greater Orlando community does not know about. You mentioned the soccer stadium. That's, you know, it's, it's such a obvious kind of symbol of the change in the Paramore area right now. And that, was opened uh, more than four years ago now, and it's kind of a marker point for the transformation of the place. Is there a bit of a risk that some of the character and history that we've been talking about can be lost as a neighborhood like Paramore has developed? Yes, I definitely think that there is. And when we look at historic preservation, um, there's specifics to how to restore buildings, which can be very expensive, right? So sometimes people feel that possibly better to knock things down and build anew. But there is such a need to know history. And in the downtown corridor, we have the most um, historic buildings. When you go to other parts of Orlando, we don't have that thread to what used to be. A lot of it is new infill design. And so it is a part of what I'm championed with, with the work that I do to make sure that we do preserve the history. And a part of that is preserving these sites. There's so much that has been lost in Paramore when we think about buildings like the South Street Casino, mm -hmm. Harvard Theater, the Lincoln Theater. And these were prominent African-American sites within the community. And that storytelling is so important for future generations to know what happened. And so, yes, a part of the city is to create economic development, but to be mindful in the way that we do that right to really work with developers to make sure that we preserve the history here and that we're really giving a benefit for the community i think that needs to be forced first and foremost when we're looking at historical preservation and economic development i'm not someone that believes that they both can't exist at the same time but i'm very mindful of how that actually comes through to benefit the community well natasha gay is the executive director of the paramore portion of city district thanks so much for joining me Thank you so much, Matthew. It was a pleasure.
Still to come, Orlando's new poet laureate Sean Welcome on taking on the mantle of official storyteller for the city. I love poetry, I love words and writing and creating and beating the drum and raising the flag and being the biggest cheerleader for anyone who's like involved in that space. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Orlando has a new Poet Laureate. Sean Welcome was approved by the City Council on October 11th, and for the next three years he'll be working to promote poetry and literature to the city's residents and visitors. Welcome is primarily a performance poet or spoken word artist, and he writes poetry with the intent that it be seen and heard. He says one of his hopes is that in the role of Poet Laureate, he can help broaden the definition of what poetry can be in the minds of the public. Sean, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate being here, thanks. Well, first of all, congratulations. How do you feel about taking on the responsibility of being Orlando's official storyteller? I feel great. Yeah, I think it's an excellent opportunity to promote uh, literacy, literature, poetry, the arts. Um, I've been doing that for many years, and this gives me an an opportunity to um, amplify those efforts. Mm -hmm. I want to just read something that you wrote in your application for the Poet Laureate uh, position. Whether on the page or on the stage, poetry is an active tool that serves us inwardly as well as those with a listening ear. There's so much we can learn from each other and the city we live in when given its due spotlight. So it sounds from that like you view poetry as as much as a means of performance, as something to kind of read and think about in a cerebral sense. Would that be a, a fair assessment? Yes, yeah, fair. Yeah, people have different uh, ways that they experience poetry, and so... Um, whether it is on a on a page or they you know watch poetry being performed in an open mic setting uh you know it just it just hits people differently and um i think being in a being a performance poet i have an opportunity to broaden how people think about poetry because it's not only on the page it's mm-hmm. spoken as well what was your intro to poetry like what what got you hooked well i started out uh, writing a cappella raps my senior year in high school. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that was more, you know, free verse, uh, rhyme heavy. Um, and so when I moved back down to Orlando, I was in Brooklyn at that time when that happened. Mm-hmm. When I moved back down and discovered I had a gift for writing and performance, I started to look for a different, you know, open mic settings where I could express that. Mm-hmm. And it was through going to different open mic settings and hearing other people tell stories and share it in different ways beyond a rap kind of style, I began to kind of like a, adopt a little bit of what everyone was, you know, saying or seeing what applied to me or mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And then going to National Poetry Slam as well was a was a big sort of shift in my exposure for performance poetry. Right. And uh, that has helped in my own writing and, and how I articulate and so forth. Was poetry taught as performance when you were in, in high school or, or, or middle school? No, or no. More just kind of read, here's a poem, read it, kind of analyze yeah, yeah, it, yeah, think yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, it was, it was very, I mean, flat's a strong word, but <laughs> it wasn't as, in, it, didn't, it didn't engage me per mm-hmm. se when we went over those things. I mean, stories were kind of neat, but um, in terms of the, holistic engagement with the work the craftsmanship and seeing my peers do it that had the biggest influence Mm -hmm. to me not like top-down teacher style that's had an impact on me and then 
also, I don't know if we'll get into this, but communicating and sharing poetry at 33rd Street Jail with um, me and my poetry troupe, Diverse Elements, back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, that to, to see how the youth offenders gravitated to finding language to articulate themselves and engage in more critical thinking in a fun way, I was able to see the impact of that as well. And it was part of the reason I started Diverse Word in 2006, mm-hmm. just seeing the potential of the impact, like the human impact that being exposed to performance poetry can have. It's beyond like entertainment, you know, it's it's deeper than that. Tell me more about that. So Diverse Word is the poetry slam that you founded in 2006, but before it, that you'd worked with some of the youth offenders in, in jail to Yes, express yeah, we had, a, we had a poetry play called Blaze the Mic. Uh, back in 2005 mm-hmm. that we performed at the old Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center. And then there was an article in the paper about these young black kids um, that were performing, doing poetry. And John Richter, who was the director of those um, the jail programs there at 33rd, invited um, us to come in and, and speak to the youth offenders and, you know, just kind of have like a positive influence on them while they're, you know, just sitting in Mm -hmm. 33rd and and we went there and it was just amazing and um blue bailey a good friend of mine poet um her and i went back the next week and um we developed a a 12-week curriculum that we did uh for two years from 2006 to 2008 Mm -hmm. and got to know a lot of the kids in there and um yeah it's 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 just an it's an experience that it's hard to communicate or feel you know over like a radio station, right, you know what I mean? Right. Like you get, you have to be there and see like the light in their eyes when their mom or their grandmother comes in to hear them perform. Cause that's what we did. We set up performances for them in the jail, mm-hmm. you know, um, that their loved ones can come and see, uh, to see it almost like, I guess like a different side of, of them. And so, yeah, that was really satisfying and it, it just made me hyper aware of, that poetry is more than than entertainment. Like it can literally change lives. And so that went for two years, and and then what happened to it? Uh, the program got shut down. Oh man, yeah, two thousand eight. There was just a lot of changes uh, politically and otherwise mm-hmm. that um, forces beyond ourselves. They're like the <laughs> plug is pulled. Yeah, but we still stayed in contact with um, some of those kids, and uh, some of them have gone on to do great successful things. Marquise McKenzie, I have to shout him out. Marquise McKenzie Sr. Uh, got out, started his own business, Dirt Master LLC, mm-hmm. um, was a part of helping get one of the bills passed to get uh, former felons to vote in the state of Florida, uh, along with um, Desmond Mead, mm-hmm. partnered with him. And So, I mean, w- we take all of those those wins, you know, but once again, I kind of go back to poetry, you know, it's like, I'm not saying that that was the only impetus to his success or anybody's but it has a role Mm -hmm. you know and we're not going to see or hear all of those stories we just got to know that those seeds are planted you know there there's been people that have come out to the open mic going through a divorce or starting a relationship or ending a relationship and they get to hear other people articulate their experiences and then there's this connection with that very deep and vulnerable space 
that's creatively articulated where you feel heard and represented. And, um, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's almost one of those things that are just hard to to measure, you know? I'm actually in grad school now at UCF for sociology, and I'm very much interested in the intersection of performance poetry, the history of it, the social impact of it, and, like, the social science of what open mics have had in the greater Orlando area. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I'll be able to dig into that a little bit more. But my heart is certainly I, I love poetry. I love words and writing and creating and beating the drum and raising the flag and being the biggest cheerleader for anyone who's like involved in that space. But I'm also interested in how it impacts individuals and society across time. If you're just joining me, my guest is Sean Welcome. He's Orlando's new poet laureate. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Diverse Word. And this is um, an event that you started back in 2006, as as you said, um, a weekly poetry night in the city. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the poetry scene in Orlando and Central Florida has, has changed in that time, because that's more than a decade of, of work you've put in there. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, so I'll honestly say that when I would go to open mics. I would say this was 04. So I turned 21 in 2004. That's when I was able to get into the AKA lounge, right? So that's Mm -hmm. like kind of when I really, really started going consistently to open mics. And CeCe Tennille was the headliner. Rod Z was the host. Anyway, the open mic scene to me seemed very homogenous, right? Mm -hmm. So like I would go to an open mic and it would be a certain group of folks, either like Rollins white kids or you know be like an all black group or it was more isolated to the socioeconomic makeup mm-hmm. and then they would kind of you know gravitate around poetry which is which is cool there's nothing wrong with that per se but me in particular I loved the poetry from all of those environments and I was hoping that there could be a night where all of that is kind of like in one mm-hmm. spot so I don't have to go to so many different places and that year, that was 2006, I'd, I'd just come back from National Poetry Slam and had been exposed to a national stage where it is very much mixed and diverse. And then, of course, my crew's name was Diverse Element. So it just made sense. I was like, I'll call it Diverse Word, you mm-hmm. know, and it'll be everything I imagine that poetry can be where it's really a mixed bag of age, race, gender, class whatever it is like the the setting would be conducive to like if if your focus is on poetry and literacy and writing and storytelling and celebrating the arts then this is like the space for you and do you feel like that's had an impact on other poetry events like are you seeing more diversity in terms of the audience and the style of poetry or is it still well i mean i I can't say for sure because my head's in the sand at diverse word you know so to speak i have so many things going on you know Mm -hmm. personally professionally and so i can't speak to that as much i believe so it's really rare i think i want listeners to know it's really rare to have a spoken word artist or performance poet in a position like poet laureate which Mm -hmm. typically is perceptionally as well for like elite literary art circles that maybe have been predisposed to writing and and literature and, and so forth. And spoken word, in, in my humble opinion, has more of an audience 
that is comprised of marginalized people groups that mm-hmm. perhaps may not have had as much, you know, exposure to the things that would make them a part of those literary art circles. And so mm-hmm. the ability to still write, but then to speak it, to say it and still be creative is just as much poetry as it is on the page. So you've done quite a lot of work with young writers through page 15 uh, and then with your slam camp. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you get kids inspired. Sure. Yeah. So that was, I believe, the spring of 2010. Mm -hmm. And Ryan Rebus with Borough Press uh, reached out to me to facilitate a poetry camp during spring break for for teenagers and um yeah I, of course I said yes <laughs> and I would work with them for a couple hours a week during spring break and coach them on their writing and their performance and then at the end of that week they would perform for their parents and their loved ones very much similar to what I did at the jail mm-hmm. you know a few years prior so yeah those are always great experiences for me to be a cheerleader in that space because I, you know, like I said, I, I see the impact of it, not only for the people that hear them, but interpersonally, the empowerment of speaking your worldview creatively, speaking your your identity creatively, sharing your pains and your hurts and your victories and your encouragements and all of the things that make up the human experience the confidence that comes with that translates into other arenas of your life. And I can say that because I've seen it happen in my own life. I reflect on my own experience. I wasn't necessarily like an avid reader growing up. I was like regular, degular uh, teenage kid. You know, I played basketball. Most people know me as an athlete that knew knew me growing up. I was a basketball player. Mm -hmm. And so to be introduced to this art form and to gain all of the positive qualities that come along with it that has allowed me to travel the country and speak and write a book and write NBA commercials and do voiceovers and all of this stuff that I would have never imagined, it makes me a believer that that is possible for somebody else who has not tapped into that talent that they may or may not know is there. So how do you conceive the role of Poet Laureate? I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me you, you really want to be an evangelist for, for poetry, you just kind of bring more people under the tent of poetry, get more people inspired. Like, do you have a, a goal, like, by the end of three years, I want to have done this with this, this role? Well, I definitely want to start something that would last in Orlando beyond my term, whatever that is. If it's, uh, <laughs> I don't want to jump the gun because I'm literally having this meeting tomorrow <laughs> with the city. So, uh, but yeah, no, I think, I think it'll be really neat to have some kind of literary arts festival be, would mm-hmm. be kind of cool. There's a few folks, um, that, I mean, something like that would be really neat. There's another guy by the name of Alex Gertis. He and I are kind of talking about brainstorming, you know, stuff like that. There's a, there's a walk that we can do like around, I, I had this idea of, Maybe um, kind of like a kind of like a walk around the city where mm-hmm. artists and and writers could like meet each other and uh, connect with each other. But we pick like a either like a square mile or something, and at each checkpoint there's like a reading. 
something like that. I don't know yet, but there's a lot of opportunities that whatever it looks like, the end goal is that our city would say, hey, this is important. Mm -hmm. This is important enough to take time out to do this extravagant thing. I wonder if you could uh, read the poem that's uh, posted on the City of Orlando website now, Reasons Why. Yes. Um, can I contextualize it real quick? Absolutely. Uh, so, so this was a poem that I was asked to write um, about Orlando, any feelings or thoughts that came to me, um, and it would be a part of the Poet Laureate installation that happened at City Hall on October 11th, Indigenous Peoples Day. When we say or you see my city beautiful, have you ever asked why? Because visitors might say palm trees have voices of their own, speak for themselves amidst the cotton candy day sky and a rainbow lit night sky. Is it also true for you who reside betwixt the magical water rides in the cool shadow of the Orlando eye, Caribbean roots plant well in this soil. They say my city beautiful, but why? Because date night at the Robinson cocktail vibes. Goff's ice cream still survives. Jeremiah's I got to have. Because La Chanera and Mi Banderas and Reyes on Orange Ave. At Mamak, I like to meet. Or maybe it's me. I like to eat. Roti shops to seafood station or Sister Honey's for a treat. We welcome the retirees from the north and from the west. Celebrate arts in the street from Immerse to Fusion Fest. Because the world comes to us. We don't seek validity. Orlando's way too cool to Complain about humidity. Wet and wild, we'll never forget you. Slide down Bombay, they loosed you. We don't forget. We honor the past while still embracing the future because innovation's in our veins, because magic, because lions, because growth comes with the sound of the sun rail over the iron, an electrifying city. Resilience could be a tagline because the long lines to give, because our pulse never flatline, because beauty's beyond visual. When you feel it, you can't deny. So when we say or you see my city beautiful, just remember the reasons why. Well, you really packed a lot into that poem, Sean. That really, <laughs> I think it really brings the city to life, and you've kind of captured a lot of the, the recent history too. Yes, I appreciate that. Yeah, Living in Orlando, you know, if you've lived here for any amount of time, then something in that poem you should have resonated with. Sean, welcome. The City of Orlando's newest Poet Laureate. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate you having me on, Matthew. And you can watch Sean Welcome perform his poem Reasons Why over on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash 907news, or on our YouTube channel. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. You can find me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening. Thank you.